Annexation of Texas had been a great issue, but Wilson knew that many Democrats had also opposed it. And he knew that many Democrats attacked slavery itself. So where were the principles that they stood upon? Why, Wilson wondered, could not the Northern Whigs and Democrats forget non-essential principles and combine to fight slavery? This is a passage of Ernest McKay's Wilson biography, Practical Radical. As the election of 1848 loomed, Henry Wilson had to reconsider his political standings to ensure they matched his morals. As Wilson noticed, Northern Whigs and Democrats were bickering over minuscule things while agreeing on the principle of opposing slavery. As party politics divided the North, Wilson's abolitionist ambitions grew, and his desire to build a coalition grew stronger. This is Henry Wilson and the Civil War. Ralph Waldo Emerson said that, quote, The U.S. will conquer Mexico, but it will be as the man swallows the arsenic, which brings him down in turn. Mexico will poison us, end quote. Many regard the conflict with Mexico as a precursor to the Civil War. Some argue that had America not engaged in the war, the issue of slavery would not have gotten so heated, creating a domino effect towards disunion by the 1860s. Where we are now is 1848. Wilson is a member of the Massachusetts General Court, and while the issue of slavery is continuing to push at politics, it still isn't the driving force, though the ramifications of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo will quickly change that. Here again is Professor Samuel W. Haynes. But for all intents and purposes, I think we can say that the war ends in the fall of 1847, and then in February of 1848, uh, a treaty is uh, signed between um, both nations, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Now, initially, um, Polk had decided that he wanted, a, he wanted larger territorial concessions than those that he, initial, that he uh, finally got. Um, he was, uh, in, at first, perfectly happy with the Rio Grande as a southern boundary for the United States, but as the war dragged on and he became more angry at the Mexican government's failure to negotiate, then he began to think of perhaps extending the American boundary as far south as Tampico, which is about 250 miles uh, south of the, uh, the mouth of the Rio Grande. Um, but he didn't get any of that, and that's, he only got what he had wanted initially. And there are two reasons for that. One is that he had sent a diplomat um, to Mexico, a man named Nicholas Trist, who, um, you know, communications being, you know, what they were in 1848, uh, really wasn't in close contact with Washington. It was weeks to, uh, it would take weeks to write a, um, to receive instructions and, um, and so on. So uh, Trist was essentially operating on his own and he cut the best deal that he thought he could get with um, Mexican leaders. Um, Polk was furious and in fact thought seriously about 
uh, tearing up the agreement and not submitting it to the Senate. In fact, he was so angry uh, that he refused to um, to pay Trist for the final months that he was in Mexico during the time that he had actually negotiated the treaty. But uh, he submits it to the Senate grudgingly, um, but also with the expectation that, or with the realization that support for the war was declining fast and there was a very real possibility uh, that the Whigs might uh, scuttle any treaty which um, uh, asked for larger territorial concessions. It's in the um, early months of 1848 uh, that Abraham Lincoln sort of catapults to national prominence. Uh, he's an obscure Illinois congressman, and he uh, and many other Whigs had believed that the war had been waged under false pretenses. Uh, he gave a speech in Congress known as the Spot Resolution. Uh, he disputed Polk's claim that the war had actually begun on American soil. He believed it had, been, it had taken place on uh Mexican soil, and he asked Polk to point to the spot at which the war had begun, and these became known as the spot resolutions. So there's a lot of Whig opposition, and also, it's fair to say, growing Democratic opposition to the war. And so in his diary, Polk makes it clear that he's angry at Trist, that he didn't get the best deal that he could possibly get. Um, I think he's less forthcoming. Um, Perhaps in his own mind, he must have realized that uh, he was really submitting to the Senate uh, a treaty which gave him uh, the best possible deal he could possibly get. And it was an extraordinarily successful uh, treaty on the part, as far as the United States was concerned. Uh, it extends the American um, territorial sovereignty by about a third uh, larger if you include uh, the annexation of Texas, which had just preceded it. And this was all in exchange for the United States willing to forgive um, Mexican uh, debts to the United States, uh, which may have been wildly inflated anyway. Uh, so it was um, a national humiliation, of course, for Mexico. Uh, but the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo has to be seen as you know, one of the great diplomatic achievements in American history. And perhaps as a side note, it's worth noting that um, the United, that uh, American Anglo-American um, settlers in California were uh, panning for gold uh, in Northern California while those negotiations were being made. And it was only a few months later uh, that Washington realized uh, what exactly they had acquired uh, in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, an astonishingly rich um, uh, vein of uh, uh, mineral wealth in Northern California. And the gold rush, of course, was on the following year. The cotton versus conscience divide is continuing to grow. And as the presidential election comes closer, this divide becomes of greater threat to a would-be Whig nominee. The Mexican-American War ended with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and America now owns all of the land north of the Rio Grande. All of this new land, mostly south of the 3630 parallel, the line indicating the region where slavery would be permitted, was now up for debate over if this land would be slave or free. Not fully realizing the implications of this question for the future, the American people reveled in the victory of all this new land. 
The high spirits of victory led the Whigs to consolidate around Mexican-American war hero Zachary Taylor. Taylor was born into a prominent slave-owning family in Kentucky and was supportive of slavery. When Wilson learned of Taylor's candidacy, he vowed to destroy the party before he would support a slave owner. At the Massachusetts Whig Convention, anti-slavery senator and hero of Wilson, Daniel Webster had presidential ambitions, but so did his colleague, Abbott Lawrence. While Wilson didn't attend the convention, the conscience Whigs were represented by Sumner, Adams, Philip, Palfrey, and Allen. Webster knew the pivotal role these men could have in determining an endorsement, so during his speech he spoke of anti-slavery sentiments, which ended up completely isolating the cotton faction and in the end greatly hurt the Whigs' perception in the South. The conscience men at the convention failed to build a coalition, and their ineptitude basically handed the endorsement to the more conservative Lawrence. Wilson came away with embarrassment for being affiliated with these men and their political failures. Throughout this entire experience, tension had began to show itself in the relationship between Wilson and his fellow and equally ambitious colleagues. Wilson came from destitute poverty and was a member of the working class, while the other men were products of the Massachusetts aristocracy. There was always a sense that his friends and colleagues looked down upon him for his humble roots. All while this tension grew and the Whigs continued to split, John Quincy Adams, the representative of Massachusetts, died, leaving a void needing to be filled. Wilson's friend and son of John Quincy Adams, Charles Francis Adams, and while both Charles Adams and Wilson worked closely together, their class divide inhibited attention. Adams grew suspicious of Wilson and feared he had ambition for his father's seat. Wilson was in fact interested in receiving the nomination, but in the end, at the Whig convention, he withdrew any prospects for a congressional nomination in support of Horace Mann. In return for stepping aside, Wilson was given the opportunity to be a delegate at the National Whig convention. Wilson's close colleagues, including Sumner, favored Adams to attend, but the convention chose Wilson, probably for his resilient nature and strong debating proficiency, as well as a good symbol of what the Whig party was still trying to represent, the working man. As Wilson headed to the convention, he made it no secret that if Taylor was nominated, he would exit the party. His conscience colleagues followed behind his plan and pledged to follow his lead. As Wilson departed from Boston, a group of Daniel Webster's supporters, including his sons, chanted, quote, Go ahead, Wilson, and we'll have your back, end quote. These sentiments were never echoed by Webster himself, despite attempts by Wilson to get in contact. At the convention, as the votes were cast, it took just four rounds until a clear nominee was chosen. The Whig nominee would be General Zachary Taylor, the candidate Wilson most dreaded. In one of the most dramatic moments of his young career, Wilson rose from his seat in the convention hall and shouted, I will not be bound by the proceedings here. The Whig party is dissolved. The hall filled with hisses and shouts as the chair called for order. George Ashman, a cotton Whig from Massachusetts, defended Wilson, shouting back, My colleague has a right to be heard. A southern delegate shouted, As a southern man, I too beg that he be heard. He'll express nothing but his own sentiments. They'll do no harm here nor elsewhere, and I hope they won't hurt him. As the crowd settled, Wilson continued, saying, As a Whig, I came here fully committed to its proceedings and organization, and I am willing to be bound by its acts, provided we act as Whigs. But we have come here and nominated a man who... Wilson was again shouted over by the crowd. A collage of screams rang out 
some saying stop and some to continue. The chairman shouted the meeting to order, saying, The gentleman will proceed. Another voice hissed, Is he a Whig? Hasn't he been identified with the party of abolition? Wilson's voice rose and shouted, We have nominated a man who said that he would not withdraw his name for Clay or for anybody, and the gentleman asks us to support him. I have always voted for the Whig ticket. I ask for nothing more than to have a good government. If any Whig from any section had been nominated, I should have felt bound by the nomination. I go home, and so help me God, I will do all I can to defeat that nomination. Wilson grabbed his papers and stormed towards the doors. The room erupted in both cheers and boos. The convention went on to officially nominate Zachary Taylor and Millard Fillmore as president and vice president. Wilson met later that night with other pro-slavery delegates, and they all decided to meet in Buffalo to discuss their plans going forward. When Wilson arrived back in Boston, his colleagues gathered in Sumner's office to hear the developments. When Wilson proudly explained his departure, the men erupted in cheers. Wilson received wide criticism for his move, but he shrugged it off and pushed ahead. In private, Daniel Webster cast doubt upon the young men's ambitions, despite them looking to nominate him for president. In a private meeting with Wilson in Webster's office, Webster expressed his views that a new political organization wouldn't make it far against the political shrewdness of the South and would only culminate in little progress. Wilson pushed back and, as usual, took an optimistic view. Looking over the notes from this period, it seems like Wilson and the other men had a complete misunderstanding of Webster. Horace Webster, Daniel's son, seemed to be much more enthusiastic about the breakup of the Whigs, which it seems he may have projected on his father. Even after Wilson's meeting with Webster, he still believed that the senator would have their back, although this was certainly not the case. Webster cared much more for his own political ambitions than he did on the principle of abolition. In August, Whigs, Democrats, Liberty Party men, and all other factions opposed to slavery met in Buffalo. While Wilson was key in organizing the convention, Charles Francis Adams was sent to represent the Massachusetts men. The meeting established an agreeable and compromising platform for all sides, with a clear distinction that the party would fight for freedom. The men chanted, Free soil, free speech, free labor, free men. The Free Soil Party was founded, Free Soil named for their goal of making the land acquired from Mexico free. While Wilson held out hope for Webster to be nominated as a Free Soiler, the Buffalo men nominated former President Martin Van Buren, a man who while in office rejected abolition, but the nomination was necessary to build a coalition with the Democrats who championed Van Buren. Charles Francis Adams received the vice presidential nomination. For the next two months, Wilson traveled New England, often visiting over 40 factories a day and giving speeches, all while managing the inner workings of the party and continuing to recruit and work towards a shot at national victory. Wilson's humble beginnings garnered even more criticism than usual, with many charging him with being uneducated and illiterate. Wilson's looks were also attacked. An adversary mocked Wilson, saying, quote, He can never get over that hangdog look, as if he had stolen sheep in his boyhood and was afraid you knew it. End quote. It's true that Wilson struggled with writing and speaking throughout his life and was often self-conscious about it. But the jabs and attacks by his adversaries were often overblown and spurred by their snobbish and aristocratic tendencies. 
When Sumner broke from the Whigs, one of his former friends ridiculed him for, quote, joining a party whose leaders are Martin Van Buren and Henry Wilson, end quote. Despite the harsh nature of his critics, Wilson never took the attacks personally, and he never held a personal grudge. Wilson felt his mission was to bring a fruition to the end of slavery, and he refused to get caught up in pointless bickering. After a year of party politics and intense work, Election Day had finally come. No one had seriously expected the Free Soilers to win, but equally no one had expected the level of success the party achieved. Despite only winning 10% of the national popular vote, the Free Soilers became the most successful third party in American history up to that point, and managed to outperform the Democrats in Massachusetts and greatly slash the Whig Party's totals. After the election, Wilson focused much of his time on taking charge of the newspaper, The Republican, by taking charge of the newspaper, now called The Republican, obtained by Charles Francis Adams. Wilson and a colleague purchased the paper and shaped it towards pushing free soil initiatives. Wilson ventured into the media world to of course attempt to grow the new party, but he was also in need of another revenue stream. With all of his controversial political affiliations, his shoe business began to sharply decline. In short, the newspaper venture ended up being a major failure. The business was too much for Wilson to manage, and costs had continued to rise. Wilson sought out the help of his more financially privileged friend's help, but they all saw the difficulties Wilson had encountered in running the paper. While Wilson managed to prolong the paper's decline for about three years, in the end, he managed to lose about $7,000 in the project. That's about a quarter of a million dollars today. After the losses, Wilson needed a better plan to bring the Free Soilers to success. As he worked at making shoes to compensate for his debts, he devised a strategy. So today we covered one of the most influential, yet often overlooked moments in the history of the anti-slavery movement. Had the men like Wilson not had the courage to stand up and leave the Whigs, no forward progress would have been made. From this point on, the ball towards disunion was rolling. So today we covered the lead up to the election of 1848, the aristocratic divide between Wilson and his colleagues, the Whig convention and Wilson's dramatic exit, and the building of a new party with the mission of ending slavery. I wanted to also note that while in the State House, Wilson served on the Military Affairs Committee and spent a good portion of his time handling matters concerning the state militia. A couple episodes ago, I had mentioned he had joined the state militia when he arrived in Natick. By the 1840s, he had been elected as a brigadier general in the militia's 3rd Brigade. General Wilson's responsibilities included things like practicing drills and surveying and inspecting militiamen. Wilson retained a position in the militia up until he founded his own regiment in 1861, which we'll get into later in the series. If you found today's episode interesting, I encourage you to subscribe or follow so you don't miss any new episodes. And if you're interested in seeing some pictures of Wilson's life and also doing some more reading, check out henrywilsonhistory.com, my website dedicated to information on Wilson. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share, please email them to henrywilsonpodcast at gmail.com and I will do my best to respond in a future episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode with me. I hope you enjoyed, and I'm looking forward to forging ahead on the life of Henry Wilson in the Civil War. Thank you.